You're listening to the audio podcast of Richard Hefner's Open Mind. For more information, visit 13.org slash open mind. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, and my guest today is Lord David Owen, an English physician, a neurologist and student of psychiatry, and a politician as well, a member of parliament for 26 years, a founder of the Social Democratic Party, and under labor governments, Navy minister, health minister, and foreign secretary. Now, in his Prager book, In Sickness and in Power, Lord Owen writes that he has been particularly interested in the effect on the course of history of illness in heads of government. He might have written illness in the heads of heads of government. For over the past century alone, Lord Owen refers to seven American presidents some have considered to have been mentally ill while in office. Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, Woodrow Wilson, Calvin Coolidge, Herbert Hoover, Lyndon Johnson, and Richard Nixon. Then, of course, there is Lord Owen's intriguing new diagnostic category, the Hubris Syndrome, about which he and Duke University's Jonathan Davidson recently wrote in Brain, the Journal of Neurology, and which they question as a possible acquired personality disorder, reminding us of what Lord Acton, my guest's fellow peer of the realm, so famously proclaimed, that power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so I would ask Lord Owen whether his insights here are the same, perhaps equally House of Lords driven. Well, I think they are. I was um, looking up the quotation of Lord Acton, which you got right, but a lot of people tend, don't use the word tens. And uh, a man was standing by me and he said, uh, you know, there's a, another interesting part of that quotation. So I said, oh, yes. And he turned over a few pages and he read out how Lord Acton had said in the same uh, essay that you should judge Pope and King and people in power by a higher standard. And there was a tendency to drop your standards. He said quite the reverse. You should judge them by a higher standard. So I said to him, uh, how do you know about that? I am Lord Acton, he said. <laughs> and I hadn't recognized him. I go to the House of Lords so infrequently. But it was an interesting... Uh, but it's a very thoughtful essay, actually, not just that famous dictum. But about that dictum, how did you come to uh, make that as the basis for your hubris syndrome? Well, I think you, um, the Greeks, after all, really coined the word hubris and often followed by nemesis. I'm a Greekophile. I have a house in Greece. I'm a great student of Greek mythology. And... For example, uh, the best history, I think, of Hitler by uh, Professor Kershaw, Sheffield University, has the first volume is Hubris up until 1936, and then from 36 to 45, Nemesis. And I think one, sometimes it's easier to look at a syndrome which affects famous people and give it a historical name or a, a, a Greek name 
I mean, some people say it's very similar to narcissistic personality disorder. I don't think it is quite the same. But try getting a head of government or a captain of industry or a big banker to accept that they have narcissistic personality disorder. You won't get very far. Whereas hubris has a sort of slight touch where it's a little more acceptable. (laughs) Is it acceptable? Is the syndrome, the concept, acceptable to your colleagues in the profession, the medical profession? Not quite yet. When I first started writing about it uh, five years ago, they were very hostile. And it was thought you couldn't have an acquired personality disorder because this is a syndrome, which is, you know, a collection of signs and symptoms which you're more likely to see together than apart. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a disease. But they didn't believe that personality disorders could be acquired. Now, you may remember the medical profession spent 20 or 25 years arguing about post-traumatic stress disorder, and eventually they did accept it. Well, that's an acquired personality disorder. So the breakthrough has come, and there are a number of other elements of personality disorders that clearly have their, an, an acquired element. And this if is an acquired illness or disorder, call it what you like. Now, if that is the case, and it only comes with power, then you ought to see it abate, quieten down, even disappear when the person loses power. Now, I'm watching with great interest President George W. Bush, because I think he did acquire it after uh, 9-11. That was a very traumatic episode for a president to have, you know, this appalling incident happening in not just in New York but in Washington and the whole threat to it and I think there are signs I mean I have not yet to see a president retire so quietly and so generously extremely generous to Obama and not critical now I notice he's coming out with a new book so I think that the man who stood on that aircraft carrier off the the Californian coast and proclaimed mission accomplished in Iraq in 1973. They they don't come more hubristic than that claim when the war was beginning to rage inside Baghdad. That, he seems a different person now. And How I'm can you explain in that. that? Well, that would be the absence the, of power. The absence of power. That he is now more relaxed. He's gone back to his uh, to Texas. He he seems to be able to live without the trappings of power. He doesn't have to. Whereas Blair, uh, Tony Blair, our former prime minister, is running around the world trying to pretend he's still powerful and endlessly going on television, writing books, doing tremendous hyperactivity, and is obviously not accepting that he's no longer a power in the land. And his hubris seems to be as... uh, high as it's ever been. But you know, I wondered, as I read in Sickness and in Power, illnesses in heads of government during the last hundred years. It's quite an extraordinary volume. And yet I wondered whether you were really referring to political power or could you write the same thing about power in any other area? I could do it. I, I don't think I could. But somebody is. People are starting to do it about the banking crisis. I mean, some of the people whose companies uh, were appallingly run and collapsed, or were saved by the American government or the British government or elsewhere around the world, 
many of them, not all of them, but many of them clearly had what I would call hubris syndrome. They were unchallengeable in their business. They ran them autocratically. They were not taking account of any form of caution. And there was deep-seated hubris. And you can also find if the chief executive or the uh, head of an organization has personal hubris, it can spread to the company, it can spread to the organization, and you get collective hubris. And I therefore think it is very important. These people create havoc, you know, and we need to be much more open about it. People find it very difficult because they've just been out to dinner with them, and they're very nice and pleasant and sociable people. They've often been appointed by a fairly open form of appointment, but slowly, often quite gradually, they acquire these attributes of a person who power goes their head, uh, what Bertrand Russell called the intoxication of power. I think it's a, a wonderful phrase, almost as good as hubris. <laughs> but isn't that intoxication of power, isn't it um, in your hands, sir, doesn't it become the medicalization of... Uh, Poor leadership. That's a, a reasonable criticism. And after all, most people who go into politics, they are pretty hubristic anyhow, including me. I, you know, I've got quite close to this. It takes one to know one. <laughs> and uh, it is a heady thing. You do have power. And it is uh, very easy after you've been in power for a year or so. You think you know the, all the answers. And it's easy to become deaf uh, to contrary advice and you build a little clique around you and there's a sort of um, isolation that goes with power. So you look for also what are the reasons why powerful people sometimes don't get it? And that I think is almost as interesting. And I think a very uh, important influence on some people is their wives. Clementine Churchill wrote to Winston Churchill in July 1940 a letter. She said, I've torn up three copies, but I'm sending you this letter, Winston, and because you're contemptuous, using that word which the Greeks highlighted in uh, hubris, and you're not listening to anybody, and people are stopping giving you advice, and I've got used to people liking you, and they're clearly not enjoying working with you, and you're lo losing lots of sensible advice. A wonderful letter. I said to my wife, why didn't you write to me? <laughs> she said, I was telling you it all the time. <laughs> and I think that is, and I've often, you know, I, I'm interested in Franklin Roosevelt, who I think is the greatest politician of the 20th century, because he was not only, like Churchill, a considerable war leader, but he was also a very great leader in a time of uh, recession. But I was always worried by this time when he packed the Supreme Court, was that a moment of hubris? And this recent book has come out in America on um, Supreme Power, which I think has been on your program, the author. Um, I think it shows he didn't have hubris. I mean, he took it on the chin, actually, when having got you know, all these Democrats in the Senate, they turned against him. And he had humor and cynical humor. And I think cynical humor is a, also a deep, I think, underlying Roosevelt was a great Democrat. And I think that's it. Churchill also had that quality. So neither of these two men, who in many ways were very hubristic, I ever think, I, I don't think they ever got hubris syndrome. Nor what did I think, and of course this is the other problem, I don't think they had bipolar disorder, or what we used to call manic depression. 
And that's what you have to guard against. So it's always complex. Churchill had, of course, quite serious depression. And some people think he did have bipolar disorder. I don't think so. There's no overt manic episode. You could say he was always manic, but uh, I don't think so. You talk about the troubles that such people can get us into. And, of course, that's, that's, you make that quite clear in, in your book. What then does one do to guard against it? An inoculation, a vaccine? <laughs> well, um, I think let's look at it most in business because there are many more serious, big, business, powerful business leaders. I think on a public board, uh, the independent directors, one of their main tasks is to make sure that the chief executive, who often they've appointed, doesn't get carried away by his power and position. And uh, I think that is one of their central tasks. Also, if you're looking at young people coming up through the company, they often have hubristic traits. Now, some of those are very good things. I mean, the trouble with this is it's, there's one side of the coin which is bad or creates problems, and one side which is good and yet creates great opportunities for the company. So mentoring is another way. If you spot somebody with hubristic traits, try and get them to understand that it must be contained, that they must uh, guard against it, that there are strengths in their um, risk-taking, there are strengths in their uh, assertiveness even, but there are weaknesses, and they've got to be on their own guard against it. And I think sometimes you'd have to be a psychiatrist to do this or a, um, an analyst. It can be a fellow business person, perhaps slightly older than you, who you respect, who points out to you gently, sometimes perhaps a little toughly, that you have these good qualities which can easily run away with themselves. But underlying it is also nags away at me because when my younger days, when I was qualified, just qualified as a doctor, I was a research worker into the chemistry of the brain. And I think it will prove to be uh, something which is, uh, has a neuropharmacological basis, uh, acquired personality disorders. Then if we do indicate that, if we do discover, not discover, if we do, shall I say, prove or demonstrate your uh, sense that there's a chemical change that takes place, um, what do we do about it when we're back into the world of politics? Well, it's pretty difficult to get a president or prime minister to accept that they have this. And um, one way, I think, is to make them more open and honest about their illnesses. I mean, that book which I wrote, uh, three things come out of it, absolutely crystal clear over 100 years. First, politicians lie about their illness. Most people would say, well, what's new about that? Secondly, and perhaps... More interestingly, their personal physicians lie on their behalf. And thirdly, and worrying for all of us, that this secrecy that surrounds their illnesses means they end up with rather poor treatment. And as a consequence, we all suffer because sometimes their illnesses continuing in office are very damaging. You know? And I think that these are things we should look at. And one thing is, which your, America is much further ahead than anyone else in the world, they must, before they go up for elected office, 
be level with us about what if any illnesses they have. And now it's pretty hard for a presidential candidate not to reveal their past medical history. And I think that's extremely important. Senator McCain, uh, up against Obama, did eventually reveal details about the melanoma that he'd had. And prior to that, when he was being uh, chosen within the Republican Party, when he was up against George W. Bush, he did reveal his medical records as a Vietnam prisoner of war. Now, I think that's admirable. And, uh, you know, we must encourage that. And if we had been at that point in 1932, when your hero and mine, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was chosen by the Democrats, if we had known the extent of his uh, incapacity, what then? Well, you see, I think this is the fascinating part, why this issue is so complicated. I mean, I think Franklin Roosevelt was made by his polio. Now, I mean, he was always an exceptional person. He had a very good brain. There's no doubt about that. And he, he was not a playboy, but there was a certain element, which is not wildly serious about him at one time in his younger life, as I read the history. But you, mm -hmm. I hesitate to say this in America when you obviously you know him much better than I. But I think that his courage and struggle in overcoming his poliomyelitis made him a much greater man and a much bigger figure. Kennedy is another example of it. I mean, Kennedy's Addison's disease was very serious. He covered it completely up. But uh, it's hard to take it away from his life. I mean, his struggle to overcome his Addison's disease, the courage with which he put up with some of the side effects of the replacement therapy he had, almost certainly causing some of his back problems, osteoporosis of the, of the spinal cord, not just um, a slipped disc. Probably, almost certainly, that he was getting adrenal supplements in those early days in the late 1930s was at the back, was a problem with his back illness. But if Kennedy you, himself is an extraordinary. I mean, there's a chapter in my book about Kennedy, yes, and I think it's a, a more honest account than most Americans chapter. will write. What? A frightening, a frightening chapter. chapter. Yes. chapter. I mean, he's, he was out of control. He, when he first became, his first uh, six months as president of the United States, none of his doctors knew what the other doctors were giving him. He was under the treatment of this um, quack doctor in, here in New York, uh, who was called Dr. Feelgood, who was pumping him full of amphetamines and steroids, whereas his endocrinologist, who was a very uh, well-recognized and good doctor, was carefully judging the amount of steroids that he should get, quite unbeknownst to him, these other injections. And the um, Bay of Pigs fiasco, uh, I have little doubt that if we had not f seen it by the uh, summer and autumn of... Um, 1961, a control of Kennedy's uh, medication and stop taking quite a lot of uh, drugs that he should never have dreamt of taking, he would never have handled the Cuban Missile Crisis in 62 as, as well as he did. I mean, it was a very, I mean, I, it's hard to criticize the considerate, careful way, a way he ignored the advice of the uh, generals like Curtis LeMay who wanted to bomb Cuba, and the way he took the executive committee through painstaking decisions, allowed Khrushchev a little leeway to be able to not lose face. It was a fine performance. 
But he was very different in his mental condition and what drugs were going through his body than the year before. Uh, 1960, if you had been a member of a medical commission mm -hmm. examining the candidates for president of the United States, what would you have done in terms of John F. Kennedy? I would like to hope and believe that I would have said that you can be president with Addison's disease, that we medical treatment of replacement therapy by 1960 had reached a stage where there was no reason that that of itself was a, a decision to exclude you from being president. But had he come up front with it, would he have beaten Nixon in that very tight election? Now, my wife is American, and she voted for him the first time she voted. She says, I'm quite wrong, she says, if he'd admitted he had Addison's disease, he'd never have been elected. And when I say, well, she says, maybe now we're much more relaxed about medical illnesses. We know more about it. We've taken away some of the uh, secrecy about it. She said, maybe now Americans would vote for a president with Addison's disease. So I think Kennedy couldn't have sprung it on the electorate. He'd had to explain it all through the 50s, that he'd had Addison's disease, he was being treated, and he was a genuine war hero. I think it's quite possible he could have won the presidential election, but well, what do you think? You're I think <laughs> your wife is much more realistic. And well, I, think I fear you're right. <laughs> she might have said the same thing about FDR, because his paralysis, his inability really to walk, and, and some of that, much of that comes out... Uh, here. Yeah, you see, I think you want us to have been wise enough to have chosen him. Yes. Anyway. Yes. I mean, he did, for a lot of people, I, um, it wasn't there almost a business. They knew he had polio, but they didn't want to believe it. So they, when they saw him standing there with his son beside him or a colonel in the army holding, just steadying him, they wanted to believe that they had a vigorous. Uh, but they knew in their hearts he had polio, most people in America, don't you think? Uh, no, I, I, don't. I, I really don't think I that, since he was my president. Yeah. Uh, well, and I, look at the most recent uh, matter of profound argument over the uh, Memorial Park in Washington, yeah. whether for, he should be seen in a wheelchair. It was President Clinton who decreed that he should, didn't he? Yeah, no, I, I, that's been uh, political correctness, taking it too far, I think. But I, I mean, it's a way of reminding people that you can overcome disability. So I'm a bit torn as a doctor, if I suddenly become a doctor again. I want to get the country to believe, the people to believe, that you, disability must not be the stopping of a career, that pe great, great things are done by people who are disabled, people who have epilepsy, the old fear of epilepsy. As a neurologist, I used to spend my whole time trying to persuade people that this is no bar to taking any job. And I think that I'm, I'm by nature an optimist, as you may have already gathered. I gather. <laughs> I, think, I think you're probably right. Well, you're certainly, I think, right over Kennedy. And maybe, uh, Which, of course, I'm too young to remember. I mean, I remember Roosevelt uh, as a wartime president, but I was a pretty young boy. I, I, going back to Kennedy, uh, I'm, I'm interested in what you say about uh, the state he was in. And you talk about the drugs that he was receiving and the drugs that he took, the recreational drugs. Yeah. Uh, you then go back to the matter of uh, his basic illness and that you would not feel that that was a bar to his being president. 
But if you were to put behavioral patterns, recreational drug use, etc., together, would you say stamp of approval? Well, the recreational drug use was um, not very good. There are two, I mean, a lot of things also people talk about is sex life. Now, I don't think that matters, but there were two relationships with women which were serious. And one was effectively a mafia gangster's model who he had a long affair with. Well, not a long affair, but a affair while being president. And the other was a East German... Uh, spy. Yes, a spy. And he was warned off by the FBI, and he took a little a bit of the advice over the mafia mole, but only after some months did he give it up. And on the um, East German, some people say she was Ulbricht, the uh, president of East Germany's, worked in his, her, his private office. That was pretty dangerous. I mean, we were at war, effectively, with the Warsaw Pact, and East Germany was a communist country in those days. So, uh, if you That were was irresponsible, the, there's uh, no doubt about that. And how does irresponsibility, and I'm getting the signal we have a minute perhaps left, how does irresponsibly enter into the medicalization well, that is the weakness of hubris. I mean, why we can't be casual about it. Irresponsibility leads to dangerous decision-making and decision-making which is not properly weighed. And uh, I think both Blair and George W. Bush had hubris syndrome. And one of the explanations for the fantastic mess that was made, particularly after the military success of the invasion, but in the aftermath of Iraq, goes down to two of the key politicians who uh, didn't get into the detail, didn't get into the serious nature of what they were doing, didn't seem to realize what they were going to, uh, the havoc that was going to follow unless they had carefully worked it out, and they didn't work it out. And you're not so it was willing, irresponsible. You're not willing to shrug your shoulders and say, well, that's what goes with the territory of a democratic selection. No, I think we need to find ways of stopping our political leaders being in that position. And in both those cases, I think with a greater recognition of the dangers of this, we could have found that they wouldn't have behaved in the way they did. Lord Owen, thank you for so much for joining me today in this discussion. Okay. But you've promised to sit still and we'll do another program because the subject merits much, much more. Thank you. And thanks, too, to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time. Meanwhile, as an old friend used to say, good night and good luck. And do visit our Open Mind website at 13.org slash open mind.